And so next Sunday, we will come to celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. This Sunday, we're going to concentrate on his death. On his brutal, torturous suffering. The old, rugged cross. So that Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice will be our meditation this holy week. Let's pray. So Father, I ask that you help me now. All of us who are here and at home see the cross. See our sin in and upon the cross. To see the beauty of what transpired between you and your eternal son as you poured out your wrath upon he made propitiation as he has propitiated you the Holy One for all who will believe in him. So do this. Do it anew. Do it fresh. Do it for the first time to some. Like what you did for me Age 19, so many years ago, sitting in the living room of that home I grew up in, being stunned at reading of your brutal death, Lord Jesus. And then joyfully stunned at your resurrection. Help me this morning honor the cross to the glory of your name. Amen. Jesus has been arrested. They ran him through a mock trial, a sham in the middle of the night, the religious leaders, and finally delivered him over to Pilate. The sun has come up. Pilate has been waffling, and he finally cowardly gave in to his enemies, the Jewish Sanhedrin. By the time the soldiers were done with Jesus, he's half dead. His back, his hamstrings are ripped to shred with those whips. Then all of these soldiers, their duty at that point is done. And they decide like Nazi death camp guards to have some fun with their victim. There's about 60 of them. And one says, look, Pilate has told us to write this above his head on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. And they said, oh, he's a king. And they would fall in mockery upon their knees. And say, praise you, O king. And another finds a stick in the bush and says, a king needs a scepter, and they shove it into Jesus' hands and again fall to their knees. Oh, king. Two other guys are over there, and they realize a king needs a crown, and they're pulling these little branches off this bush and green little buds and one-inch long curvy thorns, and they weave it into a crown and bring it and set it upon Jesus' head and press it down so that the thorns go through his skin and his nerves to the bone of his scalp. And blood starts to drip down Jesus' face and neck. He is humiliated. As all of these 60 dudes start to dance around. Some fall to the knees again. You're a great king. 
And they dance and one slugs him in the mouth and another slugs him in the head and another spits on him and another spits in his face and then they slug him again. Now it's about 8.30 in the morning. They got to get moving. Four of those guys are his executioners are in charge of bringing him now from there to his final dying place. And so they force Jesus to pick up this five and a half foot long piece of wood, the cross beam that weighs 70 pounds. And he puts it on his shoulder. And they get out into the streets of Jerusalem to walk those numbers of blocks to the gate. And after a few blocks of Jesus falling and stumbling because of loss of blood and loss of strength, finally, there's a man, an an African Jew, who's come in through the gate named Simon, and the Roman soldiers force him to pick up Jesus' 70-pound crossbeam and carry it for him. They finally reach the gate. It's the Ganath gate. While they're there, they still have about three football fields of length to go to a hill right over there. Not real big. It's called Golgotha. There's already a bunch of wooden vertical stakes, beams, permanently there on that hill for occasions like this. We read in Luke Chapter 23, verses 32 to to 33. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. This place called the skull, it's a hill. It's not very big. It's only about 30 feet high. And it's actually just 300 feet from the wall of Jerusalem, as you go out the gate and turn to, to the right, you can hit a baseball from the wall over the hill. That's how close it is to Jerusalem. Luke calls it the skull, cranium in Greek. The language of the Jews in Jerusalem and in Judea is Aramaic. And so when you, you take cranium, place the skull, and you translate it into Aramaic, it comes out Golgotha. Now, 350 years later, Jerome, who sat for a long time and translated the entire Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament, back in around the year 400, when he came to this word in Luke, cranian, the Greek word for skull, he translated that in Latin, Calvaria, from which we get Calvary. So Calvary, Golgotha, place of the skull, it all refers to the same Little hill where the Romans crucified many, 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 many Jews. And so when they arrived at the hill, they tried to give Jesus some drugged wine to numb the pain. Mark tells us this in chapter 15 of his gospel. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. The soldiers then tell Simon, beat it, get out of here now. And they throw Jesus to the ground and lay his back upon that wooden beam. Two soldiers grab one of his arms and stretch it out and put their knees heavily upon it so it doesn't move while another comes up with a six-inch spike and places the tip right there at the wrist. The Romans figured out that this is the best way to do it because if you just go into hand, the bodies often just rip through and fall and they want them to suffer longer. And they put that little tip right there in Jesus' wrist. And he raises the mallet and he comes down hard. And a scream goes out through the air. And a couple more whacks until it's pinned. Then they proceed to the other arm. And another shriek. 
pierces the air as the crowd which is gathered is standing there watching. And in that crowd is Jesus' mom, his real good friend, and apostle John. Mary Magdalene is there. There's the other Mary, who's actually James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their mother. Many other women and men who have come up from Galilee to Jerusalem with Jesus are there also with the rest of the crowd. And now the executioners begin to lift Jesus up onto his feet as he is pinned to that beam and slowly walk him backwards to one of these vertical pieces of wood that's only eight feet tall. They have to steady him. One on one side of the beam, another on the other now. A third one then grabs him around the waist and they begin to lift as the fourth executioner is behind the vertical beam on a small little ladder then to help lift up this beam because on top of the beam they have notched out a big groove for this cross beam to fall into and boom, Jesus plops and his weight holds it in the groove. As he hangs there, they begin to bend Jesus' knees a little bit and they put one foot upon the other. And then the other guy comes with that six-inch spike, places it right there in the joint, and he comes down three times with a mallet. And shrieks of painful scream ring through the air. And then finally, they take the placard, nail it right above Jesus's. This is the king of the Jews. With all of their physical work done now, these four soldiers, you've got other soldiers for the other guys, but these four soldiers, having already stripped Jesus naked, began to throw the dice to see who gets to keep his clothing. As a New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, puts it, quote, Stripped naked and beaten to pulpy weakness, the victim could hang in the hot sun for hours, even days. To breathe, it was necessary to push with the legs and pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. Terrible muscle spasm racked the entire body. But since collapse meant asphyxiation, the strain went on and on. Jesus doesn't have a loincloth. Prisoners were crucified totally naked. It's purposeful in order to enhance their humiliation and their public shame. So Jesus hangs nude into his journey of slow suffocation. As he must constantly push on what? The spikes in his ankles. Pull on the spikes in his wrist to get there. And he goes up and he goes down. He does that for 15 minutes and then an hour and two hours pass up and down and three and four. And there he hangs. And you got to get the picture because there's been so many movies made. He's not way up there. He's just hanging right there. His feet are no more than two or three feet off the ground. His head is no more than probably a one foot above my hand right here. He's just right there. He's lower than that cross. 
And all of this was visible, not just to the crowd that's there, but to who knows how many thousands were coming in and out of Jerusalem and that gate right over there all day long they could see. That's the preacher. He's pretty famous in that area of the world at that time. There's the Jesus of Nazareth. And then the the conquering religious leaders, they're there. And they got their hours in of mocking, making fun of him, as Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him. Saying, <laughs> he saved others. We need a great healer. Let him save himself. <laughs> if he's the Messiah, if he's God's chosen one, yeah, look at him now. Their taunt was echoing. Psalm 22, which was written a thousand years earlier, voicing what Jesus is thinking as he hung on the cross. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let, let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. God will answer their laughter and their ridicule in just a few days. In an extraordinary way. And that's where we're going next Sunday on Easter. But the very fact that at this point now, these religious rulers have succeeded in getting Jesus of Nazareth pinned to these pieces of wood, a Roman cross, it settled the issue for them. They knew Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 well. His body shall not remain all night on the tree. You shall bury him the same day because a hanged man is cursed by God. And so to these Jews, you would have to be a lunatic who knows nothing about Judaism to in any way think that now that's your Jesus. You think he's the Messiah? Cursed by God on a cross? You know nothing Hanging there, bloody, nude, gasping again and again for air was the lowest humiliation imaginable, as Paul writes years later in Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to God, to his Father. Obedient to death. Think of the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, but your will be done. But Paul said, obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Both Matthew and Mark tell us, and I'll just in Matthew's words, chapter 27, starting with verse 39. And those who passed by, a little road right there all day long, and those who passed by derided him. It means they laughed at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Go ahead, save yourself. 
If you're the Son of God, come on down from the cross. <laughs> they walk on. And so also the chief priest with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And they will believe in him. He trusts in God, right? For he said, I am the son of God. Then the executioners, they got in on it. The soldiers also ridiculed him, mocked him, coming up and offering some of their own wine. That's why it's cheap wine, sour wine. Some sour wine and saying, <laughs> "Yeah, hey, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. All of this was brutal, savage humor. Like the person who was implanted in the womb of Mary about 35 to 38 years earlier. It was brutal ridicule of the creator of the universe who became a human being for that person. No wonder Isaiah cried out 700 years before this, saying, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yeah, 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 we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He, on this cross there, was crushed for our iniquities and sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace with God. And with his wounds, we are healed. You see, all we like sheep, we've gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord Yahweh is laid on Jesus. The sin, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet... He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is sighted, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And yet... It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The Lord Yahweh has put him on the cross. Has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. There is no salvation for any of us right now in this room 
anybody at home, anybody on this planet right now freaked out about dying of the coronavirus? There is zero salvation from the justice that we all deserve. Except through this brutal, gory cross of Jesus from that little town of Nazareth. And so as we stand there in our mind's imagination through the scripture here, Jesus, he's just right there hanging. You can look right over his head and see the wall of Jerusalem. And right beyond that wall there in that corner of Jerusalem, there's the temple. Imagine you can hear all the goings on there and the rituals and the sacrifices happening as I read from the New Testament Hebrews. Chapter 10, verses 4 to 7. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats take away sin. And consequently, when Christ, the Messiah, came into the world, He said to His Father, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. You can hear this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is the only Savior from our guilt and our sin. This is the way He saves. As the New Testament puts it in Romans chapter 3, all of us human beings, Jews and all non-Jews, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he refers now to those who come to Jesus, believers. And we are justified, meaning we're put right with God. God's at peace with us. Our sins have been utterly forgiven. We're considered righteous with Jesus' righteousness. And we are justified by His grace as a gift on what we're looking at this morning. This is why Paul got so angry when professing Christians are tempted to add to the cross something of their own doings that they think will therefore cause God to like them better or love them really or forgive their sins because they did. It angered In any way to think you can add to Jesus' suffering in brutal, love-driven act of obedience even on a cross. I'll finish Paul for and we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom, see the cross, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation by Jesus' blood to be received by faith. Believe. This is why the New Testament cries out, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Right there on the cross. So that whoever, whoever will believe in Him will not perish in judgment, but will be granted the gift of eternal life. This Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain, killed from before the foundation of the world. This is the eternal plan of God working itself out, purchasing everlasting forgiveness and positively everlasting joy as he brings those who are his, which is anyone who will believe, into his eternal joy promised at his second coming. C.S. Lewis looks at this scene on Calvary and he writes this, God creates the universe already foreseen, or should we say seen? There are no tenses in God, but He creates the universe seen the buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake. The nails driven through the medial nerves, the repeated incipient suffocation of the body as it droops, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time for breath's sake hitched up. And then he goes on. I may dare the biological image. God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites. He causes us to be in order that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. End quote. C.S. Lewis from his book, The Four Loves. The cross of Jesus shows us plainly and clearly he did not come to save good people. He came to save sinners who are children of God's wrath. And then I want to focus on one more thing this morning before we close. And that is that Jesus, as He in true humanity in every way that we all have it, except for he wasn't sinful. As he hung for hours there, he cried out a prayer that could be heard. Father, forgive them for this because they do not know what they're So there are implications about those words and that cross for every single one of us who are believers who could say with the Apostle Paul, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, 
But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So, as I, over these last 15 minutes, I want us to think about three implications of what we see here as Jesus hangs upon the cross and we hear him pray, Father, forgive them. First is this. Sin is a state that has plunged every one of us into darkness, into ignorance. The New Testament is clear. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We've all done it. For what can be known about God is it's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. There is no pleading of ignorance. That state of the human race is what creates in us all the ability to crucify the Son of God Himself while not knowing that that is what we're doing. But that not knowing has not led any of us off the hook of God's justice. Every single sinful soul, what we need is to hear. To hear in a life-giving way Jesus to say, You're forgiven. I forgive you because of this. That's why one of the crucial marks of a true, genuine conversion to Christ must always include a coming to grips with our own sinfulness, the core of our being. Look at the Creator who became a human being who is pinned to these pieces of wood. In order to come to faith in Christ, to this very bloodied Christ, one must first have his or her eyes open to the truth of their own sinfulness. And it is the life of the indwelling Holy Spirit in new birth that creates in us a sensitivity in the hearing of the cross. It creates in us a sensitivity of hearing the Scripture, the Word of God, that then becomes a mirror to our sinfulness. That's a wonderful, saving gift. That's the first implication. The second implication. When Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Is this. It shows the love and the mercy of God in the death of Christ are deeper than any of us could possibly imagine. Jesus was fulfilling Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. 
He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet, he bore the sin of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. And as the high priest, who did not use bulls or goats, but laid on the altar of God to propitiate his wrath against all whom the Father would give to him. He, while bleeding and slowly suffocating on that cross, already began to intercede. Father, forgive them. If nothing else does, this should teach us never to put limits on God's saving grace. No, you don't understand that. Per- I know my cousin, my neighbor, my parent, my kid, my friend. They're too corrupt. They're too far gone. They're too atheistic. They're too sexually perverted. No, 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 no. Jesus is a savior, but that's not think that they could actually come to him. Don't ever think it. Because God purposely delights to save the worst of sinners. He loves to do it in order for the praise of his glory in mercy. how Paul said it. 1 Timothy 1. The saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance that Messiah, Christ, Jesus came into the world in order to save sinners of whom I, Paul, am the foremost, the worst He meant it. Now, people will compete with him, but he meant that. Because people believed in Jesus, I killed them. Imprisoned them. And I wanted to stamp this gospel out. He never got over that. Throughout his earthly journey. came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But then he says, but I received mercy because I was such a great guy. It's not how he answers it. But he does say, I received mercy for a reason. But I received mercy for this reason. So that in me, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. His mercy. His power, his act of saving persons is deeper than we can possibly imagine. And I just want to say to every believer out there, as you lay awake in the middle of the night, as Paul must have done at times, and think of your sin, even your sin this week. Don't take your eyes off the cross. It's a lie. It's a lie. An accusation in your head for you who love him that somehow you're outside the realm 
of this salvation. Trust the cross. And finally, the third implication. As we look at this historical picture of our Savior having been treated so brutally by his own people, by the Gentiles, the executioners, and all of these mockers. And then we hear him pray on that cross. Father, I'm asking you, forgive them. As we hear that, all of us Christians should feel the need to forgive and to pray for those who have wronged us. Yeah, in our own sinful nature. If we were in that spot, our sin would cause us to curse with words or torture to threaten them with horrific things. If they spat in our face, put a crown upon our head, and took a stick out of your hand and then pounded it even further, and then pinned you to a couple pieces of wood so you would slowly die over six hours of torture. That's what we would do. But Jesus, as he hung there, and in Jesus who has brought us to himself, he is our model. We are to be being conformed to his image. Now let me just say one thing real quick before I say what I'm going to say next. Jesus as a model on the cross is not the atonement. The atonement is what transpired between Christ and God on the cross concerning the elect. That's the atonement. Propitiation. Wrath of God satisfied. Now, having said that, the New Testament is clear. He is our model. And our model is hanging pinned to wood without any bitterness towards those who did it to him. And so, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, exhort all of us Christians this way. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered because you may be suffer. You may suffer all kinds of stuff. You may suffer stuff that's hard for you to get over because of what your spouse has done. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. And then he goes on. What I mean, Peter says, is this. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, come down from that cross, king. <laughs> When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That means as believers... And this is a struggle in our lives. It's, it's the battle of the flesh and walking by the Spirit. We can 
entrust our relationships with persons who have harmed us. Who have done deliberate sin against us. Physically, emotionally, financially, with words and slander or gossip. We can entrust them and their relationship with us into the hands of God. And when some of them actually admit their sin and come to us and say, will you please forgive me for what I have done, then we can and mean it joyfully. Yes, absolutely, I forgive you. Because when we Christians go into last week's sermon are saying, we look at the cross and what it means to us, how could we possibly not offer that forgiveness to those who ask it? We must be a people who are looking for people to forgive as we have been forgiven. And many people won't ask that, but as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, we can entrust them. Leave it to God. We can pray. We could really pray for their eternal well-being. We must follow Jesus' example and his clear command to us from Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And so Jesus says to all of us as we enter Holy Week here, to Monday, Thursday, into Good Friday, which this sermon is our Good Friday, on the Easter Sunday next week, as he hangs on that cross, he says to every soul, Come, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy, heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my direction, my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And if you do, you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So let's examine our hearts this morning and this week asking for forgiveness to those that we sin against and sins against God, constantly loving 1 John 1, 9, because he's faithful and utterly just. He will never deny his son, ever. He'll never deny the cross, ever, for anyone who comes. Father, forgive me. And releasing those to whom we know we're still holding so let me just say this then. Think about it. If Jesus hangs there, it was only about 14 hours earlier where he's having the Passover supper with his closest disciples. And he said to them, take the bread. This is my body, which is given for you. Now, they don't have a clue. Not yet. Come next week, they will. Slowly. Throughout the rest of their earthly sojourns, they will know. But the night before, 
They don't get it. Jesus knew what he's doing. This is my body. It's given for you. Take and eat and do this over and over and over in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. They will remember Jesus knew every torturous step that lay before him within hours. And by God's grace, by God's effectual call, we who believe, we get it. We get it now. And that's why we now say with the Apostle Paul, for since in the wisdom of God, the world, it did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews, they demand signs. And Greeks, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and its foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both to Jews and to Greeks, Christ is the power of God changing their lives. He is the wisdom of God. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God, He made you alive together. With Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside by nailing it to the cross. Oh, I have been crucified. With Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me that much. And gave himself up for me. Far be it. Far be it from me to boast in anything of myself. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. Let's pray. Oh gosh. Holy Father, May we more, in a deeper way, in a wider way, believe those words of Romans 8. For he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up to death. For us, believers, all of us, how will you not by him and with him give to us all things that we need to persevere to the end? Thank you, Lord Jesus. As we close out this worship morning, oh, continue to cause us to go deep it's, 
we know, Lord Jesus, to, to, we, we want to contemplate. And it's impossible to get our minds around it. Many have suffered, millions upon tens of hundreds of millions have suffered horrific deaths. But we're talking about our Creator, Lord Jesus, who became one of us in order to take the wrath of God. And though we didn't cover it this morning, you did cry out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For you experienced in your human soul the displeasure of God towards sin. Oh, we look forward to the Resurrection Sunday next week. And may we hold these two in this glorious balance, for there is a joy in contemplating your work on the cross. For it is to your glory that each and every soul that loves you, you went to the cross for to save them. Oh, thank you to the glory of your name.